upon marking number 206, I hope you'll revisit John chapter 3 in your Bible. We just had that read in our hearing a moment ago, John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and in just a few moments we will revisit that particular passage with a discussion of what I have chosen to call the problem of evil. My suspicion likely is that the very reading of that title has conjured in your mind a number of things, perhaps none of which will have any relation to the lesson tonight. You see, I chose that title in a very specific way for a specific purpose, and it has to do with this next slide. As I develop this particular idea with you over the next few moments, I'd like to begin by at least bringing to your attention that the word evil is likely a sense, an idea that's very familiar to us, those who love the Word of God, those who appreciate the existence and nature of God, we understand what evil is. In fact, you'll notice that the word occurs almost 640 times in the King James Bible at least. The very first time and the very last one I've listed for your consideration. First and last books in the Bible. From beginning to end, it would seem as if evil is an understandable thing that God would wish us to appreciate so that we could live wisely and honorably in His sight without pursuing evil, of course. But it's the middle part of that slide that's the matter of our study tonight. The phrase, problem of evil, is not just a general description of how bad evil is. You and I could speak much about that to be sure. But those who are atheists and those who are agnostics and those who do not believe in the God of the Bible, they use this phrase in a very specific way. And it's that way that you and I are going to consider tonight in our lesson. The problem of evil. You may well have read articles or at least heard individuals on the television speak about, well, don't you know the problem of evil surely testifies there's no God. Well, what do they mean by that phrase, and in what way are they using it? Let's use tonight's lesson, admittedly a brief one, to give some thought and appreciation to it. I would suggest to you that many of those individuals actually use this so-called problem of evil as what they consider an insurmountable argument, that there is no God. Let's shoot some holes in that appreciation tonight. It's not insurmountable. Let's do it in the following way with this beginning. I would like to take a moment and at least pose the problem. Build it up in the way that they would do it. And then we'll use the remainder of the lesson to cast a strong biblical spotlight on this. But the supposed problem goes somewhat like this, beginning near the top. Now those people who do not believe in the Bible as you and I do, those who do not believe in the God of the Bible as you and I do, over the course of the ages, they have put together a number of arguments and cases that they are quick to present to you and me. And there's even been debates, of course, over the ages between those who believe this kind of thing and those who believe the Bible with the hope that that debate could settle some things. But, of course, only a few years ago there was another one of these debates. You may note about the middle of the slide. There are three statements I would bring to our consideration because it's ones they would use. Statement number one, those individuals who, again, do not believe in the God of the Bible, they would say that these three statements are incompatible. That is to say, not all three of them can be true. 
Here are their statements. Statement one, God is omnipotent. Statement number two, God is perfectly good. And statement number three, evil exists. I would think it wise, at least at the bottom of that slide, for you and I to appreciate the fact the Word of God does testify majestically that God is omnipotent, that He is great, and that He is almighty. In fact, in Genesis 17, verse number 1, it is there described, and very directly so, that when God addressed Abraham, He defined Himself as the Almighty One. And that Almighty carries the sense, the idea, nothing beyond His will of accomplishment. Almighty. In Job 42, verse number 2, after the matters, after the considerations of that book, the dust in essence had settled, the statement is made, I know that thou canst do anything, everything the text says, and that no thought could be withholden from thee. Now, of God, again, that says nothing is beyond your ability, your capability. Let's add another one. In Matthew 19, verse 26, Isn't it true that there we so powerfully read from the lips of the Master Himself, With God all things are possible. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment? Now, I would say as far as that next statement, again, we appreciate the omnipotence of God directly presented in the Bible. But secondly, God is good, and He's ultimately good. Doesn't the Bible teach that too? Sure it does. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, God is love. His love is perfect. It's grand. His love is, of course, so marvelous and extensive. And so you and I would be quick to say, indeed, God is perfectly good. Indeed, God is omnipotent. But you and I also believe evil exists. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, we'll devote much of our lesson to that one. And so I didn't summarize it too much on that slide. But let's turn to this one and now let's put them together in the argumentation that those atheists and agnostics would do so. I've tried to very briefly write it like this. Those people say something like this. If God is all-powerful, and He truly is good, then how can it be that evil exists? How can it be that He allows in such rampant character, such extensive suffering and evil? To turn that around, they would be quick to say this. Because evil exists in the way that we observe it, and has throughout the ages of, the, of, human, of humanity, then that means the following. If God truly is all-powerful, then He surely cannot be good to allow evil to exist like this. But on the other hand, because again He does allow evil to exist, if He's perfectly good, apparently He's powerless to stop it. And therefore He must not be omnipotent. So either way you look at it, they say that because evil exists, the God that this Bible describes must not exist. He's either not omnipotent, or he's not good, or both. Now, quite often in the debates that those individuals have with Bible believers, this is one of the first arguments they list. It's one of the first matters of consideration because they consider it insurmountable. They consider it unanswerable. 
you and I, of course, as those who believe in the Word of God, firmly believe all three of those statements we just listed, that God is perfectly good, that He is omnipotent, but also evil exists. In an upcoming lesson, we will develop certain aspects of this in a bit more detail, but at least for tonight, for tonight, let's close that slide, and we will do so like this. One of the discussions, one of the considerations that often is made in connection to this is that so much of that suffering that does exist, from their perspective, they label it as needless, as pointless, as suffering with no meaning or no ultimate matter of good to it. Well, let's draw a few lessons, a few observations about this, and again, put to rest some of the things we might well note. Point number one, let's be certainly firm in saying, even as I mentioned earlier, almost 640 times the Bible uses the word evil. And as it does so, it identifies and categorizes it very directly. But make no mistake about it, evil does exist. Surely you and I can appreciate that over the course of time. There actually have been philosophers who have argued that evil doesn't exist. It's merely the absence of good. May you and I settle in our heart, it's more than that. Evil is not merely the absence of what's good. Evil is a fundamentally existent thing, and the Bible defines it. Look at some of these considerations. In 1 Peter 3, verse number 11, the inspired writer Peter pointed out to one and all this great observation. He said, abhor that which is evil. Now notice, there is no connection in that very clause at least to what is to be noted as good. Here is an existent objective reality that's to be avoided. It's to be abhorred. What's evil? Let's add to that another one in 1 John 3 verse number 12. Wasn't it true on that occasion? Again, with evil under discussion. Here a different inspired writer John pointed out, with regard to evil, it again is a matter to be turned away from or to be eschewed, if you please. But one more time, as we've highlighted here, is an objective existent thing. It's not merely the absence of something else. Finally, in Romans 12, verse number 9, again, to abhor what's evil. Well, perhaps it's fair to say in light of all of them that we now are ready to appreciate that this evil is not, nor has it ever been, of God. James 1, beginning in verse number 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with what? Evil. And what's more, He tempts no man with it. So you and I appreciate, do we not, that evil is fundamentally that which is opposed to the basic nature and character of not only what God is, but what God upholds. Two chapters later in James 3, verses 16 and 17, this evil is not of heaven. The kind of evil, of course, that we're describing tonight. It's sensual, earthly, devilish. That's the King James adjective. This kind of thing develops from this source of one opposed to God. That's where evil always comes from. Let's add to that the following. How vital and necessary it is 
for you and I to not only distinguish what's evil to what's good, but to appreciate that distinguishment in language like this. May I ask that we call to attention that description in Hebrews 5.14. You might recall those that were immature in the faith. It was said of them, basically to them, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And I become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil." There's an element of discernment. There are times when evil can appear cloaked as almost what's good. Remember, Satan in 2 Corinthians 11, it says he transforms himself into an angel of light. He can parade evil to where it appears not only reasonable, but can have the cloak of goodness to it. No wonder discernment is required because evil is not merely the absence of what's good, it is that which is opposed to the will and nature of God. That's what defines what evil is. With that in mind, one more scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, the power, the directness of this, abstain from all appearance of evil. Now that's a commandment given to all of us, to abstain from this. Now, with that, point number two. This one is the matter that our atheist friends have overlooked. This one is the matter that is so critical and, in fact, is a rather grand element against their entire argument. It goes something like this. May I suggest, I entitle that in a way, it may look awfully strange. Evil requires God? Here's what I mean by that. Remember, these who are atheists and agnostics, they're quick to say, well, look, evil exists, and your omnipotent, all-loving God would never permit this. But pause to say this with me. Where does an atheist, where does an agnostic, where does anyone who does not believe in the moral fabric of the Bible get their sense of morals from? By what right do they have to call anything evil? As you and I well know, those who subscribe to general evolution, they think that all creatures, including humanity, have evolved without any direct usage, any direct intervention at all from God or any other being. Naturalistic, survival of the fittest, they claim is what has led to you and me today. May I ask, where did our moral sense come from? If we're nothing but amoebas who have come from cells, who evolved into lower animals, who evolved into upper animals, and who finally evolved into man like you and I. Without any sense of intervention in any way, what determines morality? If it's the survival of the fittest, why not kill somebody if it benefits me? If it's only survival of the fittest and my genes that need, of course, to be procreated and sent onward... Why not do anything that may promote that eventual reality? And therein lies the point. 
they cannot call anything evil because there's no basis or standard for it. Neither can they call anything good. The best they can say is what's good must apparently be in connection to the survival of the fittest. And therein lies the point that any debater would certainly make. You, my friend, without any recourse to God, have no basis upon which or standard to which you can refer to call anything as evil. It is that point that we'll use in the following way. They are themselves quick to say, under the banner of evolution and without recourse to a moral fabric, there is no basis for ethics or morals. You can begin to see then why it's so dangerous if, again, the influence of Christianity and at least those who have a appreciation for God, without God, think about the terrible morals of our land, like those lands around our world who already reject God by and large. Oh, how we should pray for our land that this evolutionary nonsense doesn't become, again, even greater in ascendancy than what it already is. As we close that slide, though, more to be said about it would be this. There certainly is something to be said for the appearance and the reality of natural law. The reason that enters at this point is this. Even those who are atheists will admit that there is an ongoing, obviously appreciated natural law in our universe. You and I see it every day whether it be the law of gravity, whether it be electrostatic poles, no two north poles repel one another, two south poles repel one another. This is a law and there's no exceptions to it. It happens all the time. Whether those laws involve physics or chemistry or geology or oceanography or astronomy, these laws are imprinted in the fabric of this universe. Consider these thoughts about natural law. That is in perfect harmony with the Word of God. How often does the Word of God remind us about the decree, for example, of the heavens to be found exactly in Proverbs 8.29? Or what about that attachment or that set of laws or bounds related to the oceans spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 10? Or might we add to that the appreciation in Matthew 24, 29, where there Jesus Himself speaking, not long before His own crucifixion, about the great wonders to be seen in the heavens. Now what made that such a dramatic teaching is, those things are not ordinary and regular occurrences in the heavens. How often have you and I ever seen the sun turned or the moon turned into blood? The point is... We don't ever see it. But the Lord said the upheaval attached to the overthrow of the Mosaic system was likened to that. And therein lies the point. The orderly and regular presentation of natural law. You and I recognize the shining, the shining sun each day, the law of the oceans and the other aspects of God's creation. And Revelation 4.11 reminds us we should praise God for that creation and the order that's attached to it. Perhaps one additional point then would be this. Isn't it fascinating to reflect on the orderliness of that creation as Genesis chapter 1 presents it? 
This universe did not come about in a haphazard, chaotic way. There was light, a firmament, the gathering of the waters together with dry land appearing on earth, the various celestial bodies on day number four. Day five brought about life in the oceans and in the atmosphere of earth. And day six brought about, of course, land-dwelling creatures. And finally, mankind himself. An orderly progression. A beautiful thing to consider. And yet our evolutionary friends and others who are rather atheistic will call into question those details, fitting in eons of time when necessary and describe many other particulars that are different from and often opposed to the development of that chapter. May I say that natural law will have a bearing on our next point. And point number four is this one. It is in this connection that many times the movements begin to take this form. Even those who are of this disposition, quite often because they understand there's no basis for any moral statements, they'll say, okay, I agree then. I cannot call anything evil. But everyone would agree there is suffering. You and I know it well. We've all had ailments, debilitations, various and sundry matters, sometimes requiring surgeries, and they're rather painful. And there are ongoing occurrences and happenstances sometimes completely out of your control and mine. Sometimes they're automobile accidents. Sometimes they're accidents around the house and on the farm. We've all done it. Why does God permit this kind of suffering? Especially for those people who honor Him and try to serve Him. Why doesn't He step in and stop when that ladder is about to fall so that I'm not hurt? Why doesn't He prevent those cars colliding that lead to such suffering of you and me and our families? Consider some of these points about suffering. Like I said, these individuals will often now choose to not use the word evil, but they'll discuss much about suffering. Some of these points, perhaps, are fair to say. Remember, their basic point is this. A God who is loving... And a God who is sufficiently powerful would not permit this kind of suffering. You and I are quick to say, oh yes, He would. And there are many reasons it might be offered. But let me briefly again describe just a few, and we'll again develop much of these in a much more expansive lesson or series of lessons, perhaps at some point in the near future. But first of all, consider this, with that natural law in existence an orderly and regular existence upon this earth. And by the way, aren't you and I thankful for that? If the force due to gravity varied unpredictably and irregularly from one day to the next, there would be an end to all engineering. You'd never be able to build anything that would be steadily trustworthy and reliable. In fact, even the operation of your heart would obviously at this point now be a challenging thing. Because if the force due to gravity varied, how strong would your heart have to be to pump the blood from feet to head? We see the point. But with a law of gravity that's regular, predictable, and that occurs the same every day, the structures, not only those man-made, but those even biological in character, 
can have the required characteristics. In light of things like that, could we now say this? If natural law is a part of this universe and God has clearly asserted that it is, then what about those circumstances when a person chooses either directly or accidentally to violate that natural law? Well, sometimes things like this will happen. In 2 Kings 9 verse 33, there was a woman named Jezebel. She fell from a very high height and it killed her. Well, you and I today understand, again, it will, may well be seen simply as this violation of the natural order that God has put in place and upon that kind of violation there are consequences. There's even a New Testament example of this. There was a man that fell asleep in a sermon. He fell three stories and died. So he fell likely around 25 to 30 feet. And that kind of fall, the way that he fell, led to his death. Now Paul raised him back to life in Acts chapter 20. But we understand again the physical consequence that natural law was violated in the sense that he acted in a way, although accidentally it was. But not only that, might we say this, that matter of suffering leads to another one. And this is the overwhelming one to note, at least for the moment. The vast majority of the suffering that is to be noted in our world is the direct result of sin. And notice again, we've already defined what evil is, it is the opposition of the will of God. And think for just a moment of the extensiveness, the pervasiveness, the overwhelming character of the amount of suffering that either directly or indirectly is the result of humanity's sin. I've listed only a very few verses. It began, of course, back at the very beginning. We remember what happened to Adam and Eve because of their sin. But at this point, I chose for you to consider with me Judges chapter 6. There, We'll just simply note a couple of verses at the beginning of that chapter. But Judges chapter 6 begins like this. And the children of, e children of Israel did evil, there's our word, in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Might we take note? Because they did evil, they suffered oppression. Because they did evil, they suffered under the hand of these foreign individuals who persecuted, who made their life miserable, who brought them to poverty, and not only that, caused them in great order to suffer. Look at the next verse. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So here's a group of people, God's people. They suffered because they sinned. They had to live in caves and lived in very unpleasant, no doubt damp, cold arrangements because of their sin. Let's add to that this one in Second Chronicles 36, verses 14 to 17. Quite a bit later in the Old Testament... But this rather dramatic description is given. It begins like this. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen 
and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked his messengers. I'm sorry, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men. Let's pause a minute. Here were people, these Babylonians killed my baby boy. They killed my teenage son. Do you know why that happened, God would say? You transgressed my will. Your sin, at least indirectly, led to the death of your own child. Let's read on. With the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age, he gave them all into his hand. The next verse would go on to say, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, and they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. These people suffered mightily, but they brought it upon themselves. You suffered, God would say, because of your own doing. Today, isn't it still so true that in so many instances that happens? This family that's in turmoil and chaos. The dad's a drunkard maybe? A gambler? Well, where's all that come from? They're doing evil. Your sin is bringing on all of these terrible consequences. One could add to that so many other particulars. Issues that bring about far less than what the ideal conditions in a family or in a community, or in a nation, that could well be the case. Isn't it fair to say then, the connection to sin in such a dramatic way might lead us to 1 Peter 4 verse 15. As far as thinking about our word evil and the assertions that's made there, the word suffering is used, and that's partly why I chose that verse. It's very telling. 1 Peter 4 15 but let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Did you notice? If you're a murderer, you should expect some suffering. If you violate the will and law of God, you should not be surprised that you will suffer as a result of it. But the other elements in that list... A thief, so a person who chooses to steal, don't be alarmed if you have to suffer because of this. You may be incarcerated. You may find yourself on the other side of a gun as someone defends their property against your attempted thievery. The point is, you may suffer. Peter says, don't be alarmed if you do. He also added this one, as an evildoer. Anything you choose to do that's against the law of God, don't you be alarmed if you will end up suffering in some way because of it. Suffering, you see, is a natural expectation when one chooses to do evil. It is in that connection I would invite you to make one final note about this. 
Those who, again, atheists and others, who make this affirmative claim, all suffering is evil and wrong and bad, even they don't believe that. Some suffering, even they will admit, has a good purpose to it. And doesn't the Bible teach that too? Talk to any parent who loves their child. Is there some suffering invariably involved here as you use the belt? As you use a limb? As you in some way punish? It's not pleasant to punish. But you do it and it may well bring some suffering to the youngster, to the child. But you do it because you love them. And you do it because of the good benefit that you trust it will have. Aren't there many other ways, too, that suffering can be seen as a good thing? May I ask this one? You know, it's excruciating at times to see that doctor or nurse plunge a needle into the arm of your baby boy or girl and to hear them scream because of the pain. But you are happy to have them vaccinated because you know it's what they ought to be, because you know it's good. You want them not to get a disease sometimes later that that inoculation will prevent. And so you're happy to see them suffer that way because of the benefit you know it'll bring. I mentioned verses like Isaiah 48.10 and Isaiah 1.24. In those instances, even God testifies some suffering is good. Could I ask you to note the Isaiah chapter 1 one especially? In Isaiah 1.24... Therefore saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries, and avenge me of mine enemies. And I will turn my hand upon thee, and purely purge away thy dross, and take away all thy tin, and I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness." the faithful city. Did you hear it? Here, this dross, and you and I remember that impurities are taken out of metal so they'll be pure. God says, I'm going to take all that dross out so you will be called the faithful city. I'm going to punish you so you'll be the prized possession of righteousness after all this is done. God's going to punish them so that they would be pure and appreciate the seriousness of faithful purity. The Isaiah 48 passage is in some ways even stronger, at least in the phraseology. Would you notice how it's presented in Isaiah 48.10? There it reads in the following way, Behold, I have refined thee, that's God talking, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. God told His people, you're going to be afflicted. Now, your sin has brought it about, but you're going to be afflicted through the furnace of it, but I'm using it to refine you, to make you better. Isn't that what discipline is always about? I'm sure all of us can remember the suffering due to Dad's discipline. At the time, it sure wasn't pleasant. In fact, we hated it. But I suspect, if we're all honest, we're thankful now we had it. It made us better individuals, better citizens, better youngsters, and better adults. Let's close that point and bring ourselves to number five. So, so far we have cast aside almost every part of this atheistic argument. 
again, they try to refer to evil, but they can't logically because they have no basis to refer to it. So they start talking about suffering. And in that connection, we've just learned some suffering is actually good. And as the violation of natural law is to be expected. One last thing remains, at least for our lesson, the knowledge of God. The last thing to which they sometimes will turn their attention. So in the admission that some suffering's okay, they still say some suffering's pointless. Some suffering's useless. May I ask, who is in a position to claim that any suffering's useless? That any suffering is pointless? Neither you nor I know the future. Neither you nor I know the ultimate arrangement of consequences that any action may ultimately have. But God knows all of that. And if He allows some suffering now that may actually present some greater or prevent some greater suffering in the future, how could it not be said that the first suffering was the better? The knowledge of God. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, God says, From everlasting to everlasting, I know from beginning to end everything. There is none else. You and I know that that degree of knowledge from our perspective is beyond our ability to fathom. To know every thought, every intent, and every consequence of all of that. And yet God knows all of it. Is it not true He could permit certain suffering now with the thought that it will prevent greater suffering and greater catastrophe later? From our perspective, you and I would never be able to know that, but He does. To that, could we not say this? That appears to be a part of the very argument that God used in His discussion with Job. As Job chapter 38 began... Job, throughout that book, had made a desire. He had made a strong essence how he wanted to dialogue with God. I'm suffering, but I don't know why. But he knew his friends weren't correct. He simply wanted an opportunity to discuss with God. And God, in His reply in chapter 38, said, Job, you better pull up your suspenders if I can say it that way. I'm about to talk to you, buddy. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If you know, tell me. Where were you when I made the morning stars with the capability of singing? If you know, please share it with me. Where were you when I made the mountain goats and the conies with a capability that to this day man doesn't know? Job, if you know, please share it with me. And over the course of that chapter and the next, 50 questions he asked Job. Job couldn't answer one of them. Not a one of them. And to this day, the human families can't answer all of them. Point is, God's knowledge is so far greater than ours. His ways are higher than ours. Surely then, in that light, we can say this. It is our job, even in the midst of this omnipotent appreciation of the love of God, to understand that evil does exist. It is the violation of His will. And you and I then must simply trust that God is always right. End of story. That was stated in Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He always does what's right. 
that may well involve and the appreciation of suffering on your part or mine. But we look for a place, Revelation 21, 4, where there is none of that. A place where there's no sorrow, no pain, no death, no crying. And aren't we excited about the thought of a place like that? This very night, I know our lesson has developed in somewhat quick fashion some of these points, and much more might have been said, but enough to put to rest the so-called problem of evil. Although the atheist may refer to it as an insurmountable problem for folks like you and me, it isn't. And we have tried tonight to speak quickly to put some of those matters to rest. The lessons we've noted, evil does exist. But the very discussion of it requires the moral standard of the God of heaven. And furthermore, we appreciated that there is a natural law also in place because God loves His creatures. And the last two points, there is suffering. And the entrance of it has many things, some of which are good. But in the final analysis, the knowledge of God is basic and required. I hope we've been encouraged to have greater confidence in the Word of God. Trust Him with all your heart. Acknowledge Him in all thy ways. He shall direct thy paths. Reach Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Tonight, if there's someone in the audience, and perhaps upon analysis of your life, you aren't faithful. Though once a faithful Christian, you've allowed that to slip from you, and perhaps the argumentation of people who refer to the problem of evil has begun to trouble you. I hope we've at least helped tonight to put those matters to rest. The problem of evil is not a problem for the Christian. It's a problem for the atheist. They're the ones that have no answer for it. They're the ones that have no approach to it. But those who believe the Bible have the answer. Trust in that Bible with all your heart. Obey it fully. Submit to the God of heaven. Live faithfully till death. If you've never become a Christian, you need to take care of that, though, tonight. Because, you see, the world could end at any time. You might pass away tonight. But either way, this life is the one opportunity to get ready for judgment. If you aren't ready tonight because you've never become a Christian, believe in Jesus, won't you? Trust Him as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. And if we could be of help to you and assistance in any way, we'd love to do that. But we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.